Okay, we're in week three of a series on the book of Colossians. It's a series that we've called Enough is Enough. And one of the threads that runs throughout this letter is that when you find yourself weary, when you find yourself tired, when you find yourself overwhelmed, pretty good odds, if you do a little self-assessment, you're going to find that there are things or people in your life that you have elevated to a place, just like John was talking about earlier, above Jesus, that you're trying to get from people or things what only Jesus can give. And when you do that, it leaves you wanting, it leaves you tired, it leaves you exhausted. Now, the crazy thing is sometimes we elevate destructive behavior, sinful patterns, right? It could be uh, sexual sin, it could be chemical sin, it could be all kinds of things. So sometimes it's, it's the bad things, but just as often, maybe even more often, we elevate the good things in our lives. The noble pursuits of life can somehow become idols in our lives. So being a husband, being a father, being a, a businessman, being a businesswoman, being a, uh, all of these things that really are gifts from God, we have this, this strange ability, as soon as God gives them to us, to begin to elevate them to a place where we're trying to draw something out of them that we're supposed to draw out of God. And whenever you do that, I'm telling you, it will leave you tired and weary and overwhelmed. So we've called this series Enough is Enough because the idea here is most of us get to the place where we cry out enough is enough. And then there's another side of it is if we lean into Jesus, we discover he is indeed enough, right? So let me kind of give this to you as a, uh, a way of example in my own life. So if I begin to look to my position here at Grace, my job here is a way of giving me identity, if I begin to think, well, I'm a pastor of a church and all this, I get all of this accolades from this. The minute that I do that, anytime things go well, I'm going to be on a high. Anytime things go poorly, I'm going to be in the devastated. Anytime you say nice things about me, I'm going to be all happy. But if you say anything mean about me, I'm going to be all devastated because I'm trying to get from you and from this place called grace something that I'm supposed to get from God. And it will leave me disenchanted. It will leave me angry. It will leave me hurt because I'm trying to get something out of the church that the church can't give me. Christ can give me, but the church, when I talk about the church, I mean the local church here. A different, another example of this is if I look to Meg, my wife, and I, and I expect her to love me unconditionally. I expect to get from her my sense of identity and worth. The minute I put that burden on her, the reality is as well as she loves me, she can't love me like God loves me. And so then I'm gonna be disappointed in Meg. I'm gonna be angry with her. I'm gonna be putting an expectation on her that she can't even bring. And so then there's this stress that exists in our lives. And so Colossians is this book that's written to help us say, look, when you are overwhelmed, when you've had enough, stop and ask the question. It's the very thing that we did together this morning with John is just ask, what have I elevated? What have I put in a place that's competing with Jesus in my life, okay? So the writer of Colossians, Paul, wants us to know that when you're exhausted, when you're tired, it's probably, in most cases, because you've looked to something, and it's crazy. The something could even be good health or, or you know, being working out or, or even diet can be. It can, it can be all kinds of things that shouldn't be idols and things that are good in our lives that get in the way, and we just need to have good self-awareness. We need to do good self-evaluation on a regular occasion. So here's 
a different way of saying everything I've just said, which by the way is kind of a summary of the last two weeks, if you've been here, of Colossians, is when we get our vertical relationship in order, all of our horizontal relationships fall into place. When you get your relationship with God in the right place, all of the rest of your relationships fall into order. Your marriages, your, your parenting skills, your friendships, your work relationships, they all hinge on whether or not you have the right vertical relationship. So there are thousands of promises in the scriptures. If you were to go to the, uh, Google and just write, type in how many promises are there in scripture, there'll be sites that say 3,000, there'll be sites that say 8,000. I don't know, I've never counted them all. Uh, but what I can say confidently is there's thousands. And all of those promises hinge on having Jesus in the right place. Right? All of the promises of scripture hinge on us knowing who Jesus is and holding him at the center or above all other things. Okay, so that's kind of a summary of where we've gone, and it's a kind of an overview of what Colossians is all about. So grab your Bibles, turn to Colossians chapter 1. We're reading verses 24 through 29, and here Paul, the writer of Colossians, is sort of transitioning from what he has been talking about to telling them a little bit about his own mission. He actually lays out his personal mission statement in these verses, and he's telling them what he's, what he's doing and why he's doing it, and he's using it as a way of encouraging them in their own journey with God, okay? So he's going to lay it all out for them in Colossians 1, 24 through 29. Paul is writing, he says, now... I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden from ages and all generations, but now revealed to his saints. Verse 27, to them... God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him who proclaimed warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Verse 29, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for the word of God. Thank you for the power of the word of God. I just pray in these next few minutes, these brief few minutes that you would just give me wisdom as we unpack these few verses. Help us to hear what you want us to hear. Help the truth of your word to be planted into our hearts into good soil that it would grow and bear fruit a hundredfold. Help us to leave this place different than we came because we've interacted with the living God. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so look at verse 24. Paul starts with these uh, uncharacteristic, not uncharacteristic, but uh, unfamiliar maybe to most of us, these words. He says, now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. In essence, what he's saying is it makes me happy to suffer for you. And at first glance, this seems totally... uh, non-intuitive, right? It's, it doesn't even make sense. It's a, it's a hard sentence for any of us to say, but I believe if you stop and you think about this for just a minute, you realize that this is probably more common than you think. If you've raised children, 
then there's probably been times where you've given up something that you wanted in order to give it to your children, and then you received great joy in doing that. If you've, if you've ever been in a relationship where you've had the opportunity to give up something or to sacrifice something for somebody else, and then you realize in doing it that there's great joy and doing that, that something comes back to you when you're willing to do it. So it's not as foreign as we think. As a matter of fact, I think because we are created in the image of God, that there's something in us, there, that, that's something that we're hardwired to get joy out of sacrificing for others. So here at Grace, we have a mission statement. Our mission statement is we are... I'm sorry, but the Saturday night group did better than you guys. So we're going to have to do it one more time. We are. Right. In the mosaic, we talk about all the time. It's this picture of, of being diverse age and economically and racially. And, and it's just part of who we are and what we're going to embrace and the way we do things and the way we program. But, the, but the, our desire is to grow and to be disciples of Jesus and to be a disciple of Jesus is to live like Jesus. And what we know to be true is that Jesus suffered. Right? He suffered for us. We know that even though Jesus was in every way God and had all the attributes of God, the scriptures tell us that Jesus, in being very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped or held onto, but he made himself nothing, taking on the form of a human. But not just a, a man, but he came as a servant. But then it says he came not just as a servant, but he came as a servant who was willing to die. But not just die, but die on the cross. The most brutal, horrific death in human history. And if you read that passage that I just talked about that comes out of Philippians, what you see is Jesus willingly chose to suffer for us. Right? That Jesus willingly went to the cross for us. We are a mosaic striving to live like Jesus. And if we're going to live like Jesus, then we have to be willing to suffer on behalf of other people, to suffer for people in Jesus' name. We can see this calling that all of us have as followers of Jesus laid out for us perfectly clear in 1 Peter 2.21. It says, for to this you've been called. What is he saying? For this is the reason that you've been given Jesus, the very reason, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. Now, some of you are saying, why in the world would anyone want to be a Christian? Why would anybody choose to follow Jesus if suffering for others is the central theme of what we are called to do? And I'll tell you why. Because this is the great paradox of the Christian faith. You know what a paradox is? I'm going to put the definition of a paradox up there. A paradox is a seemingly absurd, self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained, proved to be true. It's something that seems absurd, but when you think about it, you begin to say, oh, yeah, that's true. So here's some examples of paradoxes, not in scripture, that we use. Right? One is less is more. Have you ever said that? Yeah, sometimes it's absolutely true. Doesn't really make sense. It doesn't really seem logical, but sometimes less is actually more. Some of you are saying less preaching would be more, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, how about you have to be cruel to be kind? Sometimes that's actually true, and it doesn't go counter to even what I'm teaching today, but there's times where saying no is the best thing for somebody, right? You have to be cruel to be kind is a paradox, right? 
Here's one of my favorites. Um, no one goes to that place anymore because it's too crowded. <laughs> yeah, you got to think about that one for a minute. But some of us have thought, oh, yeah, I get it. I get it. Uh, one of you that you might be able to relate to is I'm going to start thinking positive, but I know it's not going to work. <laughs> All right. Well, here's what I want to do from the passage that we have this morning is I'm going to show you three paradoxes. And uh, if we could just learn to uh, internalize, to live into these three paradoxes, it will change this church and it will change our lives. So three life-changing paradoxes. The first one is life is full when it's emptied. Life and purpose and joy and beauty and meaning the, the purpose of our lives are found in giving our lives away to others in Jesus' name. You want to know how to get out of the funk that you're in? Serve others. One of the best ways to battle depression is to serve others, to actually give yourself away on behalf of others. One of the ways you can help yourself in this is to teach a child to read. We have this incredible opportunity here at Grace to teach every willing third grader in Detroit to read at or above grade level. We have churches from all over Metro Detroit that have joined us in trying to teach all of these little kids how to read that are struggling in the Detroit school system. It's an amazing opportunity for us to fix an injustice, right? But the only way we can do it is if people will step up and if people will give one hour a week sacrifice on behalf of others. What would it be like if we as a church, all of us said yes to this and we each decided to teach a child to read? I want to show you a video because it probably brings us all to a point better than I can, but this is a little bit about the tutoring program, and then we'll look at the rest of the paradoxes. Let's show the video. When the boys came to us, Luke knew only two words. That's all he knew, two words. If you cannot read, you can't do anything, and I want to see them prosper. With God's help, I know it can be done. Let them listen, obey, and love their teachers. I ask in the sweet name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Praise God. See you later, my baby. Okay. See you later. All right. If you can't read, it stunts you for life, and it's disheartening. I'm Alicia Brown. I'm Luke's mentor with SOAR. I don't know what he's missing and what he's not getting um, and what made him come to SOAR in the first place, but he pushes me to be a better parent, to be a better servant. So early on when we started the literacy program, uh, God gave me this pretty clear vision of teaching every willing third grader in Detroit to read at or above grade level. And what's become clear is if we can do that, if we can do that one thing, it will change the trajectory of the kids' lives in Detroit. It will change the city of Detroit. So Detroit is an after-school reading program where for two hours a week, students get to come and receive love 
care and focused attention from a mentor. You know, you can never actually say what working with one child will do, but if it takes that child towards doing great things for the community and for the Lord, you can't beat it. We are called as a church to do justice. Uh, the scriptures say that I, the Lord, love justice, do justice. And it is an injustice that children don't get the education that they need to be successful. We believe that now is the time for the church to come together and to flip the statistics upside down. That instead of 14% of third graders reading at grade level, that in the near future, 86% of third graders can be reading at grade level. To help teach a kid how to read and to speak into his life, her life, could this be the year that we do that together? So imagine if, if we were successful at this. Imagine if we got to that 2,000 kids this year and 4,000 in the year ahead and maybe five or 6,000 going forward. And we did this over the next 10 years. Imagine the impact that that would have in Detroit. SOAR works. It works. I see a change. And I don't know if I will be happy with myself if I didn't serve in this capacity. And also, I don't know if I'll be happy with myself if I didn't see that my work is actually changing someone. We're trying to give every kid in Detroit what they need to succeed. Kids like Luke, kids like Larry, this could very much be an axe moment for the church. I think if we do what God is calling us to do. So I got a a text at six o'clock this morning, I, I didn't show that last night, and the text said, we have kids on a waiting list because we don't have enough mentors. And I said, well, I'm gonna show the video today because it sure fits to what I'm talking about. Uh, and I just wanna encourage you to sign up. It is, it is such a, an easy way to serve, and it has such a huge impact. So uh, those little cards in the back of your seat that are, look like this, you can just write your name and address and your phone number on there, and at the bottom of it, if you just write SOAR, We'll know what you're signing up for and just drop it at the information counter. Uh, we're gonna need 20, 30 pe more people to sign up just to serve the kids that we already have coming, uh, but we're gonna need more. So if you feel any nudge at all as you listen to that, uh, we would love for you to be a part of what SOAR is doing. But the, here's the point. As we give ourselves away as a church, as we pour out, God is going to fill us up. Life is full when it's emptied. It's a powerful picture. The other thing that happens when we serve is we actually find God. It's, it's, it's this amazing paradox. So what did Jesus say? He said, what you do for the least of these, you do for me. He said, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. And then the people ask, well, when, when were you those things? And he said, what you do for the least of you, least of these, you do for me. We actually discover Jesus as we serve the people around us. We actually find God as we serve people. And then this crazy thing happens. Like Paul, we can say, and I rejoice in my suffering. So look again at your Bibles. I Hopefully you keep your Bibles open when I'm teaching. It's gonna make it a lot easier for you to follow along. But we're in the second part of verse 24. That's right, we've only covered half of one verse so far. 
So take a deep breath. So we're in the second part of verse 24. Paul says these words. He says, and in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of the body that is the church. Now, this is probably one of the most confusing passages of scripture, I think, in the New Testament. Because if you just read it at face value, what it looks like it's saying is, I, Paul, have to do something in addition to what Jesus did in order for you to be saved. Right? You see how you could get that from that? I am my flesh and filling up whatever is lacking in Christ. And how many of us would ever use the words that something is lacking in Christ? And so if Paul was actually saying that, then he would be contradicting everything that he just said in the letter and really contradicting almost everything he's ever written in all of his letters. And Colossians comes later in his life. So, so we can make a pretty good guess that that's not what he's saying. So with a little bit of work, we discover that he's saying something different. And, and probably the first clue that we have when you look at that passage is that word affliction. In the original language, the word affliction is used many times in the scripture, but it's never used in scripture in reference to redemptive or atoning suffering. So Jesus was an atoning sacrifice for us. What does that mean? It means that Jesus' suffering, Jesus' death on the cross was a substitute for us, that it atoned for our sins, right? And that's a different word. Whenever that word affliction is used, it's never used as an atonement, right? Okay, so Paul is saying Christ's sacrifice was more than sufficient. If you read the first part of Colossians, he lays that out super clear. But then Paul says in that same passage that, that I suffer for the sake of the body. And this is our other clue because the body is the church. And when you see the word the body, it's more than just a metaphor, we, the followers of Jesus, the church of Jesus Christ here in this campus, but around the world, we are the physical presence of Jesus in the world. We are the body of the church. We are the body of Christ. And because we are the body of Christ and because Christ is still being attacked by the world, we are going to experience affliction. We are in a battle. There is a war. You know, there is a force out there that does not want you to walk with Jesus. You know that, right? There's a force out there that does not want your friends to walk with Jesus. There is a war going on between good and evil, between light and dark. And Jesus is, is we are the physical presence, the body of Christ. And because Christ is still under attack, we will experience affliction. And this brings us to the second paradox. The second paradox is that affliction is an advantage. Affliction is an advantage. God uses affliction and persecution of his church to strengthen and grow his people and his church. A good friend of mine once told me, you know, Doug, we seldom grow apart from pain that we seldom learn what God wants us to learn, that we seldom change without some sort of affliction in our lives. I had this chance to visit Ken and Heather uh, Bresser when they were in Russia. We took a small team there and we spent some time with them. It was a great trip. Uh, but one of the things we got to do while they were, we were there is we sat in a small living room with a group of pastors, some of who had been pastoring in Russia for a long time. One of them was a fairly older gentleman. He was probably then my age, but he seemed old at the time. Um, <laughs> I don't know how old he was. He was older than me. But anyway, uh, and he was a pastor during the, the heyday of communism. Right, so he was part of the, what they call the underground church. He was part of the secret church. He was, he was smuggling Bibles into Russia. He was 
teaching and, and doing house churches that were all you know, top secret. And he was, he was talking to his neighbors about Jesus. And he was doing all of this at the risk of being imprisoned or even being killed. People just disappeared when they were discovered as being part of the underground church, right? And so he's risking his life and he understands all that comes with that. And we're, we're sitting in this room and, and listening to his stories and, and, and getting to know these guys. And at some point I said, how can we, Grace Community Church, way back there in Detroit, how can we pray for you and how can we pray for Russia? And this seasoned pastor said, pray for persecution. Pray that communism comes back because that's when we were the church. Think about it for a minute. Pray that persecution comes because that's when we were strong in our faith. That's when we knew who was in and who was out. That's when it wasn't just a club. If you were part of the Christian faith, you were seriously part of the Christian faith. Here's a man who's praying for persecution because he understood that there's an advantage to the affliction. We were stronger back then. Do you know the fastest growing church in the world right now is in Iran? Like it's not safe to be a Christian in Iran. There ain't no Jesus stickers on the back of cars in Iran. I'm telling you, right? And so one has to ask, well, then how do people know about Jesus if nobody's putting Jesus stickers on the back of their cars? Like for us, that's really stepping out. I'm going to put this Jesus fish on the back of my car. Everybody's going to know, not by how I drive, but by what I say, that I'm a Christian, right? And they don't Jesus fish in Iran. How do they know? Because people tell them at the risk of their lives, people share the gospel. And the church is growing at 20% in Iran. It's crazy to me because affliction is to their advantage because they know if they're serious about following, they're, they're serious about something if they're willing to risk their lives and in some cases actually die for the gospel. There's something that Christ uses in affliction. So when Paul says, I, I'm filling up what is lacking, what he's saying is, look, there's affliction that's gonna come. I am continuing all of, all of what needs to happen. I'm doing my part in advancing the gospel and, and fighting this war that's in in front of us and affliction's going to come and we just need to realize it and know that that's just part of what's going to happen until Jesus returns again. Imagine if we embraced this understanding of affliction is an advantage. If you go back and you just read the book of Acts, the cool thing you're going to see is that, that most of the great movements in Acts came out of some sort of persecution. As a matter of fact, it was the persecution of the church that caused the, the Acts church in Jerusalem to finally go out into all the different places that they went through, Samaria, Judea, and to the ends of the world. It was the persecution that forced them to get out of their comfort zone and go out, right? And so, so they understand that. But there's this one story I just want to share with you real quick. So Peter and another apostle, we don't know who it was, uh, were in the temple courts and they they were teaching about Jesus and they get arrested. This is all in Acts 5. And so they, they go and they're arrested and then supernaturally God opens the prisons for them and they, they leave the prison and instead of going and hiding under their bed, which is what Doug would have done, they went back to the temple courts to preach about Jesus. The very place they just were when they got arrested, they go right back to there and they teach about Jesus again and lo and behold, they get arrested again. But this time they get, they're beaten, they're flogged, which is a serious, brutal beating, right? And so they're then released and Acts 5.41 says, then they left the presence of the council, that's the people that had them beaten, rejoicing because they were counted worthy of suffering. And here's what I want to say as a total confession. Um, I'm not there yet. Like, like that seems so crazy to me. I spent a good deal part of yesterday complaining because I have this little infection under my fingernail. When I bump my finger, it hurts. 
Right? That's my kind of suffering. Oh, boy, that really hurts. I've never been beaten. I've never been whipped. But I can't imagine like walking out. I, I'm pretty sure, and I'm just being honest with you, and maybe you can relate to this. I'm pretty sure I've been like, really, God? Really? I'm teaching about you, and, and I'm going to get beaten? Really? This is how you repay me? Right? I mean, there's, there's, but there's something different going on. The Acts Church understands that, that there's an advantage to the affliction. They counted themselves worthy of suffering for Christ. How cool is that? So Paul says, I'm filling up what's lacking in Christ. And then he shifts in verse 25. He says, of which I become a minister according to the stewardship of God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. He now begins to talk about his own personal mission statement, his vocation, his calling, if you will. If you have an NIV, I think it actually uses the word commission. He says, I've been commissioned to make the word of God fully known. I've been commissioned to tell people about Jesus. And then in verse 26, he says, I want to help people to discover the mystery of God. In verse 27, he tells us what the mystery of God is. The mystery of God is Christ in you. It's a crazy mystery, but when we say yes to Jesus, that something happens, he indwells us. It's Christ in you. And we're going to see what that means in just a minute. And then he says, I, I want to present everyone mature in Christ. I am, my commissioning is to teach and to mature people, to make disciples of people. The crazy thing, if you look at Paul's stated mission statement here, it lines up perfectly with what we call the Great Commission. Let me read it for you real quick. Matthew 28, 18, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And behold, I'm with you even to the end of the age. This is our calling. So when Paul talks about his mission statement, he's telling the church in Colossae, hey, this is what I'm called to do, and this is what you're called to do. And then the great commission laid over that makes it clear that we are all called to teach people, to lead people towards Christ, and to make disciples of all people. And how do we do that? We do that each in our own unique way. God has designed you to do good works. He prepared them in advance. However God has made you, you need to live into what he's made you to do and sacrifice your comfort for somebody else. Give yourself away because when you pour yourself out, you're filled and you sacrifice for others and you will experience affliction. Why? Because now you're on mission and you're doing the very thing that God has asked us to do. You are part of the body of Christ. The body of Christ is still under persecution. So you will experience affliction, but the affliction is to your advantage advantage, right? And so you, so you have this picture of us going forward and us doing what God is calling us to do. Paul says these amazing words. Look at verse 29, and this will lead us into the third and final paradox. He says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Just look at the passage for a minute. Whose energy is he toiling with? Yeah, Jesus' energy. He's not doing this on his own. It says, I struggle with all of his energy. It's Christ in you that gives us the power and the energy to do the very things that God is calling. So when you pour yourself out, we're making room for more of Christ in us and more for God to do what God wants to do. And that is the third paradox. The third paradox simply is Jesus. He is, in every sense of the word, a paradox. Everything we believe, everything we teach hinges on the paradox, who is Jesus. He's the king of kings, the radiance of God's glory, the Lord of spaceless, fabulous, infinite, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, unspeakable, holy, dwelling in light, unapproachable, changeless, 
And yet he condescended to be enclosed in a lonely human flesh, to be born of a despised Judean in a filthy stable in the womb of a simple Israeli woman and without fanfare or prompt. He is all powerful, wrapped in total humility. He is all powerful yet beaten and hung on a cross to die. He died, yet he lives. He's the firstborn of the resurrection. He's Jesus, he's fully God and fully man. So today's communion, and so we're gonna take a communion. I love it that it's today. So there's two things that we're asked to do when we take communion. Uh, and communion is for anyone here who said yes to Jesus. So whether you belong to grace or not, if Jesus is, is the center of your life, we would love for you to be a part of this. But the first thing it says to do is to examine yourself. Something we've really been doing throughout the whole service. Ask yourself, is there anything in my life that's gotten in the way of me following Jesus with my whole heart? It's a good chance for introspection. The passage says a man ought to examine himself before he takes. So this is a good chance for you just to ask a good question. Is there anything that's getting in the way? Am I relying on anything or anyone for what I should be getting from Jesus? The band's gonna come up and we're gonna uh, just pass out to community. So if you're one of the servers and you wanna come grab the trays, that would be great and start handing them out. I just ask that you hold the elements uh, and just take the time as we just listen to the music and hand out the elements, just take the time to ask the Lord to show you whatever he wants to show you. Hold on to the elements. I'll come up and uh, we'll take them together.
So for 1,400 years, from the time of the Exodus story when Jesus delivered the people from slavery, once a year they would gather for this thing called the Passover meal and they would celebrate their freedom. But if you read the Old Testament over and over, God wanted to make this point clear. I did this for you. You did nothing. You didn't make the plagues happen. You did nothing. With my outstretched arm, I redeemed you and I saved you. So for 1,400 years, the people would get together and they would celebrate their freedom. And so it was a look back at all that God had done to, to save them from their slavery. But it was also for every person that participated for 1,400 years, it was looking forward to the day when the Messiah would come. So when Jesus was in that upper room and he was having the meal, it was the Passover meal. And so when he used the words that he uses, they weren't just words, they were the fulfillment of 1400 years of waiting. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, became the ultimate paradox. And he held up the bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. Every time you take it, remember me. The scripture saying the same way he took the cup. The cup was Elijah's cup. It was the cup of sacrifice. It was the cup that saved the people then and was going to save the people when the Messiah came. He wasn't just holding up a random cup. It wasn't just a random meal. He held up the cup of sacrifice and he said, this is my blood shed for you. Every time you drink, remember me. Lord, teach us to remember. May we never take the elements lightly. May we realize that this is not just a cute tradition. We now continue a tradition for 3,400 years of remembering your grace and your saving work. May the power of the cross be seared into our heart. Help us to remember your body broken, your blood shed, that we did nothing, but you have redeemed us and you have saved us. Help us to be willing to be poured out for others. Help us to recognize you in our affliction. And help us to see the paradox, which is Jesus. Amen. So if you read the gospel accounts of the upper room, it also says when they finished, they sang a hymn. So our tradition here is to sing when we finish with communion. So I would encourage you to stand and sing with John and Bryce. Jesus, be the center of your church. Jesus, be the center of your church. 
Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Enjoy your Sunday.